This past May, Jamie and I celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary together. And, you know, even, even after these 15 years, I feel like I'm still growing to understand the gravity of what took place on that day. As I went down memory lane just a little bit this yesterday, kind of thinking of how to introduce this message, uh, thinking back on that Saturday afternoon, May 29, 2004, Jamie's dad walked her down the aisle toward me, arm in arm, and symbolically he took her hand and took my hand and placed it into mine. He took her hand, the hand of the young woman that for 25 years he had raised, provided for, protected. Since birth, he took her hand and entrusted her to me, that now I would carry on the work that was begun of providing for her, protecting her, guarding her well-being, and certainly her well-being in Christ. Just moments after that transition, we stood before God and, and the witnesses in attendance, and Jamie entrusted herself to me to be her husband for the rest of her life, that she would from that day forward on live every day upon my God-given role as her husband, that she would live every day with the realization, I am now, under the umbrella of Christ, her provider, her protector, the one to nourish and cherish her for the rest of her life until death do us part. She gave herself to me in that wedding ceremony. And for the better part of these 15 years, uh, I'll let her speak to it later if you want to ask her. Theoretically, she wakes up every day with the realization that I'm her husband. And yes, there are men all over the world, but I'm set apart. She's entrusted herself to me. She looks to me to provide, to love, to cherish, to guard, and protect her. Likewise, on that sacred day, I entrusted myself to her to fulfill my God-given duties as a husband. I entrusted myself. I will, until death do us part, care for you, provide for you, love you, nourish you, cherish you, protect you, guard your well-being. To the best of my ability, I will fulfill my God-given duty to you and entrust that you going forward are my wife. You are God's woman to me, my helper, my helpmate. I gave myself to her that among all the women in the world, she's the one set apart to be my helper, my wife. When a person entrusts themselves to you, it means something, doesn't it? You can hear the word trust in the word entrust, but it's so much more than that. To entrust yourself to somebody is very weighty. There's great gravity to it. To entrust yourself to someone or something, it changes the way you live. I've been entrusting myself to something, but now I'm entrusting myself to something totally different. And to entrust, I'm giving myself to this thing. I'm giving myself entirely to it. Not to what it used to be, but now to something. It's a life-altering Weighty matter. It changes everything about us to the core of our being. When Jamie and I exchanged our vows, and the same is true for you and your spouses, you did not entrust yourself to your spouse and other people. You entrusted yourself to one another. To understand entrust, it is certainly to trust one another, but it's more than that. To entrust is to love, is to impart, is to give entirely yourself over to someone you dearly love. To trust. And out of your love for them, I'm going to give and take the provision, the protection, the love, the nourishment. But we don't just entrust ourselves to anybody, do we? We don't just go around and just... Any old person that comes by, I'm going to give myself to just anybody who comes around. Of course not. We've all had experiences we could go back to and realize there are people 
who are kind of a flash in the pan. They come around for a season and they give the appearance of being so trustworthy, so loving, so kind, so wonderful. And this is a person that I would entrust myself to only for various reasons to realize they're not worthy. There are times when people come to our lives at the beginning, it seems all is well. They're a blessing, they're an encouragement, but then over time we learn their true nature. And they're not for our good. They're not for our gain. And so we use discernment. And because they're not really devoted to me, I'm not going to entrust myself to that person. That would be foolish, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you agree? If a person is not devoted to you, why would I devote myself to them? We understand that, don't we? Along the same lines, but what is much more difficult for us to understand, especially in the culture of Christianity that we live in today, is that God, too, does not entrust himself to everybody. In God's perfect wisdom, in God's perfect righteousness, in God's sovereignty, he chooses to entrust himself to some, and he chooses not to entrust himself to others. And this really isn't news. This isn't like, you know, we've never known this before. We constantly read of this in Scripture, that God of his own discretion chooses who he will entrust himself to and who he will draw near to and who he will claim as his own and who he chooses to not. The great difficulty for us when we hear that is we want to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. We want to put everybody on the same playing field and say, well, that's not fair. Here's where that argument breaks down. You and I can only see the externals of people. We can look at one another and we say it would only be fair based on what we see and know externally about one another. Everyone deserves a chance. But we don't really know what's in the heart of an individual. We don't know that. But is there someone who is all-knowing who does? And that's God himself. God knows what's in the heart of man. God searches. He knows the depths of man. He knows every thought, every deed, every motive, every desire of mankind. He knows perfectly what is in man. And he will not entrust himself savingly to the many who observe his miracles, who say they believe, who say they have faith in the Messiah, they say correct things about him, but they themselves do not entrust themselves to him savingly. The title of the message this morning is A Counterfeit Faith in the Face of an All-Knowing God. A Counterfeit Faith in the Face of an All-Knowing God. Look with me at John chapter 2. We've made our way now, down now to verses 23 through 25. Jesus has begun his public ministry. He's changed the water to wine, which again was not about water to wine. John calls miracles of Jesus signs that point us to the person of Christ, that reveal, that manifest his glory. Christ is the divine wine of joy, we said. And then Christ has come through the temple and cleared it out in the passage we looked at last week. So Jesus is garnering some following. People are seeing the miracles he's doing, and they are believing Jesus is the Messiah. And yet here's what Jesus utters about the many who were following him. John chapter 2, verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. To that we usually read, hallelujah, praise the Lord, right? If we're reading undiscerningly, we would read that and say, my goodness, how wonderful this is. No, stop. Verse 24. But Jesus, on his heart part, did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people. 
and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Beloved, this is a sobering, sobering text. I've been telling you texts like this are coming. I've been warning you that throughout Jesus' public ministry, we're going to read about a great following that Jesus garners because of the work that he does, and Jesus at almost every turn is very quick to say, you are not who you claim to be. And this morning for you and I, it's not for us to position ourselves away from this group and say, well, he's talking about somebody else. This has been included for you and I that you and I might take evaluation of our own heart. Have we, who profess faith in Jesus, that we believe Jesus, that he is the Messiah, we can say all the right, have we truly entrusted ourselves to him? Can Jesus, and does Jesus, because he searches our hearts rightly, does he look into your heart and my heart this morning and see a life that's been entrusted to him? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We have nothing else to lean on but you and the power of your word and the work of your spirit upon our hearts. This is one of those texts, Father, we don't always know what to do with. We're not always best at applying it to our own soul. And so, Lord, we pray this day that you would be kind and merciful and gracious and give us ears to hear, even if we don't want to hear it. Even if we cringe at the very premise of what's already been revealed about what this text says. Would you overcome in kindness, in omnipotent power, would you overcome our resistance and help us to see what you see? Because that's really the only thing that matters. It's not what we think about ourselves. It's not the, how we grade ourselves in comparison to others. It's what you see. When we stand before you, what do you see that counts? Father, give us eyes to see what Jesus sees. That today, those who have entrusted themselves to Jesus and are living upon that daily would continue to grow in it. But for those who have not, that Father, this message would be a means of grace to so humble, even religious hearts that we would cry out to you for grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, as we look at this very sobering text, there's primarily two lessons I think we take away. And the first of them is this. And please, please, please follow me in this. Lesson number one, not all belief in Jesus is saving belief. Not all belief in Jesus is saving belief. So verse 23 picks up right where we left off last Lord's Day. It's still the Passover. He's still in Jerusalem. He's still around the temple. He's cleared it out. Jesus is still doing various signs. Again, those are the miracles that the other gospel writers write about, but John calls them signs because he wants to, to see uh, beyond the miracles to what it's revealing about the glory of Christ, the excellency of Christ in those signs. So Christ is doing all kinds of things which prove that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. John tells us later, he's doing so many of these signs, if, we were, if I were to have written them all down, John says, it would take countless pages to do so. I just can't do so. I'm handpicking a handful of things here that I can bring to your attention that make my point, John says. Jesus is the Christ. So he's doing all these signs, and many people are believing. They're seeing Jesus do these things, the water into wine. That was more of a private one, but as he's doing more public ones, they're seeing it. And they're believing. To which our first instinct is to say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. That sounds like good news, doesn't it? How many of us, maybe even this very passage, we've read that and maybe skipped over verses 24 and 25. or not really giving them that closer attention. Or we, we've read about the masses are following Jesus and our instinct is, man, that's glorious. We wish that would happen again today. Jesus' point, it is happening today. And not everyone who claims to follow Jesus is genuinely entrusting themselves to him. Jesus is making a big impact in his public ministry. His fame is spreading. 
People are coming to Him and professing faith in Him. They're believing He is the Messiah. Please hear me say that. They are professing, you are the Messiah. The very thing we would probably, if I were to ask you what makes you a Christian, well, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. That's exactly what they're saying. And Jesus here says that is no indication of true spiritual life. Groups are coming to believe in Him, and since we've been in John's Gospel, we've studied the word believe a number of times. We've talked about the belief in, the, in its context each time. Like, for instance, in John chapter 1, verse 17, we read about John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. Now, that's a positive belief, that through John the Baptist, some might come to believe savingly in him. That's what the belief there is, saving belief. Skip down a few verses, chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Is that saving belief there? Yeah. To those who received him, he gave the right, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That is God himself declaring the work of the gospel, that that is saving belief. So the first two times we've seen belief used, it's saving belief. There is a third time that we've already hit upon. In chapter 2, verse 11, there at the wedding at Cana, after seeing the miracle, we're told his disciples believed him. Now, there's only five or six of them at that point. It's not the full 12. Judas is not included. Is this, um, is this saving faith? Saving belief? Absolutely it is. His disciples, who have already professed faith, they've already entrusted themselves to Jesus when they left everything to follow him. This is saving belief. So, in all of the previous examples or previous uses in John's gospel of the word believe, its context has always revealed it to be true saving faith, true genuine belief that eternally saves. So that begs the question for us today. In verse 23, at, in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, John tells us many, same word he's used previously, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Is that the same kind of belief that we saw previously? If we're not careful, we'll run right through this and say, Amen, hallelujah, people are being saved. It would make a lot of sense for this to be the exact same kind of belief that we saw previously. But we must always ask, is there another kind of belief that Scripture talks about, The Scripture warns against? Can you think of any? Can you think of any individuals who profess to believe in Jesus and then showed themselves to be not true believers? I will tell you there are countless. It's not a hard exercise to go through. Judas is certainly one. In Acts chapter 8, we're introduced to Simon the Magician. You remember the story of Simon the Magician? He's going around making a living by tricking people through his magician stuff. And then Simon heard Philip preach about the gospel, about the kingdom about Jesus Christ. And Acts chapter 8 tells us, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So they're professing a belief in Jesus. They're being baptized. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. This is a man who's giving every indication of being a true believer. He's professed faith in the message of, of the apostles that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's been baptized. He's following Philip around, continuing in ministry. And yet we're told that shortly thereafter, in verse 14, Acts chapter 8, Peter and John came to town. And God was using Peter and John 
to usher in the work of the Holy Spirit upon people through the laying on of hands. And when Simon the magician saw this, he approached them privately. Teach me to do that. Give me that power. I want to do that too. He was not entrusting himself to Christ, to the power of Christ. He was still living for himself so much so that Acts chapter 8 Peter and John say this to Simon, who just previously professes to be a believer. He's been baptized, and he's a good church attender. Repent, therefore, they say to him, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For if I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity, for I see that. What are they saying? You're not a believer. You've said all the right things. You've gone through the motions. But you're not a believer. James chapter 2 tells us about the demons. They believe God. They know right things about God. They can say right things about God. J.C. Ryle tells us in his commentary on this, there can be such a thing as a mental belief in the right thing or the right person of Jesus Christ and nothing here this is what Jesus is exposing this is what's been true all throughout church history and we are fools every one of us myself included if we run past this and say I don't have cause to examine my soul inside of in light of this J.C. Ryle says about these people who have a mental belief they know it all and are offended if you question their, the, the sanctity and the seriousness of their belief in Christ, these persons, he says, do not appear to have really believed with the heart. They've only been convinced in their understandings. And the distinction, Ryle says, between intellectual belief and saving belief, and between one degree of saving belief and another, ought to be carefully noticed in Scripture. There is a faith which devils have. And then there is a faith which is the gift of God. And this is what Jesus is exposing as well. There is a faith that even a God-hater can have and can sit and be baptized and follow Jesus and sit in church and sing the songs and pray the prayers and preach the sermons. And there is a faith that is a gift of God that changes everything in the life of the person. So, how does Jesus respond to the many who believe the signs that they were observing? Verse 24, very unexpectedly. Jesus, on his part, verse 24 says, did not entrust himself to them. Man, Jesus is mean. Right? Isn't that the takeaway you would hear oftentimes? That's just cold and callous. I mean, nobody's perfect, Jesus. Why you got to be like this? Well, he answers why. He knows what's in the heart. So, verse 24 says, Jesus on, him, on his part did not entrust himself to them. There's a word play here. This is where the Greek does come in handy. The word entrust in verse 24 is the same word for to believe in verse 23. Same Greek word, pistuo. Same word, just translated differently. So let's bring it together. What is ultimately is John saying here? John is saying they had faith in Jesus. They professed to have faith in Jesus. And Jesus had no faith in their faith in him. That's, that's verses 23 and 24. They professed to believe Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus had no belief in their belief in him as the Messiah. Do you see that? Jesus here, they had faith in him, but he had no faith in them. John MacArthur says about this, though they believed in Jesus, Jesus did not believe in them. He had no faith in their faith. Although many claimed to believe, Jesus knew that mere intellectual assent proves nothing. Beloved, shudder when you hear that. I tremble when I hear that. Mere 
head knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done and being able to spout it and rehearse it means nothing. Zero. Take no confidence in that. What he goes on to say, he says, even the demons have that knowledge. Like the seed that fell on the rocky and thorny ground. Those who possess that kind of faith hear the word, initially receive it with joy, but because their hearts were never, here's the idea, changed. They never really entrusted themselves to Christ in such a way the whole of their being was changed. Just like when marriage, you entrust yourself to your spouse. I'm no longer entrusting myself to a parent or others that I may have dated. I've entrusted. I'm now living every day differently. It's a life-altering, changing. This is my husband. This is my wife. Nobody else. Jesus, as he looks at the hearts of those, he says, they've not entrusted themselves to me. They've not forsaken all else for me. The seed fell on the ground. For a moment, it sounded good to them. But because their hearts were never changed, they eventually fall away. Jesus does not entrust himself to these people who simply believe in him for what he could do for them. We talked about this the last couple weeks. As Jesus is going around performing his signs, people were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for the King. They were looking for one who would come and do the things that Jesus did, who would come and deliver them. And in Jesus, they, they were in agreement. This is him. Nobody could do what this man is doing unless he were the Messiah. They said the right thing. Their profession of faith was correct. It was right. And if they had done that in today's church, they would have been ushered to the back to be baptized this week. And Jesus here says, there is no indication whatsoever that I have become all to you. You have not given your life and forsaken all else that you might have me. Now, let me connect a couple dots in preparation for next week. Keep in mind that chapter breaks were not inspired. That was done while well-intending people to try to help us to better organize the thoughts of Scripture. You see, at the end of our text we're looking at right now, there's a chapter break. And chapter 3 introduces a new individual. Someone I think we're all familiar with, Nicodemus. And there's a when you see the chapter break, I don't know why, but there, it does a, a mental thing with us. Okay, new thought. No. What we have in verses 23 and 25 is not, this is the conclusion of Jesus' cleansing the temple. And now we get to chapter 23, or chapter 3, a new day. Here comes a new individual. No. Look at how chapter 3 begins. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Do you hear the connection? In light of what he's just said, Nicodemus is example one of what I'm telling you. Nicodemus is one who has seen what Jesus can do. Nicodemus comes, and what does he say? Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. He's making a, a right profession. No one can do these signs that you do. How does Jesus respond to him? You said all the right things. And you must be born again. I know what's in your heart. I hear your words. You're saying all the right things. Nicodemus, it amounts to zero. I don't give you a pat on the back because you know who I am. And you're right in what you've said. You're going to hell unless you're born again. Born, and we'll talk more about what that means next week. But here, Nicodemus is the kind of individual that Jesus did not entrust himself to. Who, Nicodemus was a religious man, a religious leader, who had all the right answers about Jesus. And yet this man, Jesus says, you've not entrusted yourself to me. You're in grave danger. You must be born again. Nicodemus is a prime example 
of one whose belief in Jesus, they say all the right things, and they feel comfortable in their testimony, but they should not. They should not. The crazy thing when we get to next week, and I have to slow down here because we're getting, if you listen to Nicodemus's words, everything he says is right. But he's lost. Well, we'll study that more in depth as we come. Nicodemus is the example here. So what Jesus is exposing here in this very first lesson, not all belief in Jesus is saving belief. Saying true things about Jesus is not the same as professing faith in Jesus from the heart, entrusting yourself to him. And Jesus himself does not entrust himself to anyone who comes on the basis of what he can do for them. Just because they said, hey, you're a good teacher, you come from God, you can do miracles, we know God is with you. All right. And I do not entrust myself to you. Not all belief in Jesus is saving belief. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. Every one of us have reason to shudder, to tremble, and to fall on our faces before God and to seek Seek what is true of me. The second lesson here. We don't always discern the difference. This is not, we don't always, here's the point. Jesus knows the difference between belief that saves and belief that doesn't. We like to think we know the difference. Church history is replete with examples that we do not. We are, as Paul Washer sometimes says, gospel ignorant. We know enough of the gospel to be dangerous. But without knowing, as Isaac Ambrose, in looking unto Jesus, writes, the, go- the fullness of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation, from eternity past to eternity future, the plans and purposes of God in saving a soul from beginning to end, without that in mind, we focus upon a little, little strip of that time, the cross, which is the pinnacle of it. It's the most important. But that plays into the fullness of the gospel. Jesus knows the difference between belief that saves and belief that doesn't. John is writing that we would know the glory of Christ that we would believe Christ is glorious, that Christ is beautiful, that Christ is excellent, and so savor Him and live upon Him. And this is the excellency that John is living upon. He wants you and I to be constantly confronted with this glory about Jesus. He knows the difference between belief that saves and belief that doesn't. Verse 24, Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because, why? He knew all people. This is his glory. This is the glory of Christ that's on display. He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. That's the glory of Christ that we're being confronted with here. He knows all people. The idea there is absolutely. He knows absolutely perfectly all people. He knows absolutely and perfectly you and me. Jesus knows that within our hearts, there are different multifaceted desires, different wants, different joys. And he also recognizes those, he recognizes perfectly those who profess faith in him, but their faith is not genuine, not real. Because he sees that simultaneously with that, 
there's a heart and a soul that's entrusted itself to something other than him. He says elsewhere, you can't serve two masters. You can't love both Christ and money. And here on a Sunday morning, well, part of our prayer meeting is we are trying to come to grips with the reality of our neediness and, and we're not perfect and we come clothed in Christ. But probably for many of us, we're not always quick to recognize, no, no, I don't do that. Well, yes, we do. And Christ knows it perfectly. Christ knows it absolutely. He knows everything about us. And this is his glory. This is the glory of Christ that he has an all-knowing mind into your life and into mine. This Jesus of Nazareth, who's going public with his glory in his public ministry, filled with all knowledge of mankind, perfect knowledge. He knows those who proclaim him and those who don't. He knows those who are proclaiming him, not because they've entrusted themselves to him, but because they're just enamored with what he can do for them, the signs and wonders. He can fix their marriage. He can fix their finances, their job, their church, whatever. He knows. And when you get down to the core of that, it comes down, Jesus came for this reason, to reconcile us to God, not to make this life better, not to make our homes better, our marriages better, our finances better, our churches better, our jobs better, any of that. He came because we are sinners before God for the forgiveness of our sins, to die on the cross that we might be reconciled to God. Forsaking all other things, that's my great need, for my sin to be forgiven and to live a life of repentance, not one time, but every day, all throughout the day, a life of repentance from the wrath of God. Christ knows the heart perfectly. He knows whether that's happening. He knows what's there. He knows the desires. He knows whether the faith is real or not. He is omniscient and He knows you better than you know you. He knows me better than I know me. And we will not be graded in the final analysis. Well, you just didn't know what I know. He will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And then what's the response? But! And then we're going to fight for our rights. And he says, no, no, I knew perfectly. I saw you, you said the right things, you did the right things. No, I'm not arguing that. I knew your heart perfectly. This is one of the most important features of the book of Revelation as Jesus walks among the seven churches. You're here, you're worshiping, but I'm tasting of your heart. <laughs> I spit you out of my mouth, you make me sick. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were hot or cold, but you're lukewarm. Your love for me is not what it should be. And it's not just that he's grading the church. He's testing exactly what we see here. I know what's in your hearts. Do we see and understand when we think about Christ? This is who Christ is to John. Is this who he is to us? The one who knows me perfectly. I don't get away with anything. Maybe I can hide from other people. I cannot hide from him. Is this the Christ that we are dealing with on a daily basis? I would venture to say in our Christian culture today, not at all. We have a Christ today who, yes, I've sinned, but he forgives. And is there truth with that? Absolutely. To get to that point, there has to be a heart of genuine falling on your face before the holiness of God, being crushed by the weight of your own sin and your need. Christ is the only thing I have, and a life of repentance is not a, I keep going back, I do it. He knows I'm doing the best I can. Nobody's perfect. He's looking into our heart. Are we clinging to him and him alone? He knows it all. He knows everything about the lost man and woman. He knows everything about the truly righteous people. Now, there are many here that he does not entrust himself to, but there are fewer that he does entrust himself to because he knows their hearts. So what's in their heart that's not in the hearts of others? 
pure love and need and devotion and desire and pursuit of him. The heart of the righteous is not perfect. It's perfect in Christ. It's clinging to Christ. It's hoping in Christ. It's rejoicing in Christ. It's being conformed to Christ. It's being sanctified to be more like Christ. He sees and he knows. And the point here is he knows perfectly the hearts of every nominal professor, every church tender who's been baptized and professes faith in Jesus and would fight with their last breath. I don't need to hear this. I'm not worried about me. Well, funny how the gospel writers and the New Testament writers, who were some of the most godly people before the face of God, said, every day make your calling and election sure. They never reached a point to where they thought, I don't have to worry about this anymore. That's not something, I, I, I took care of that long time ago. That would have never been uttered from Paul's lips. Would have never come from Peter's lips. They would have said, today, if my salvation is true, if my love for Jesus, then it will give bear fruit. It will give indication. Jesus knows it perfectly, and there should be fruit for my life that, that I can see that Christ is all. And if in that day I don't see that fruit, fall on your face and repent. And cry out to Christ. Christ knows. He can distinguish between belief that is a gift of God and the mere profession of a man. He can discern the secret lust of the heart which man indulges in. He can discern the reality of when we drift away from him, he knows it all. This is why John writes, verse 25, Christ needs no one to bear witness about man. I don't need anybody, Jesus says, to come up and, what do you think about RJ? Or, or what do you think about Larry Provines? Or what do you think about Dell Irvin or Jamie Cooper? Jesus doesn't need help from somebody else. He says, I know you. I know you better than you know you. I know you perfectly. And I know whether you've entrusted yourself to me or not. It was Jesus who in John chapter 1, you remember, as he's calling his first disciples, remember Nathaniel? Nathaniel's a little skeptical. He comes up to Jesus. And how does Jesus reveal his glory to Nathaniel? He said, as Nathaniel's coming, behold, an Israelite, this is John chapter 1, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. And Nathaniel says to him, how do you know me? And what does Jesus say? Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I what? I saw you. You can't physically see that place from where you're at. The point is exactly what Jesus is drawing, John is drawing attention to about his omniscience. He's all-knowing. He knows perfectly. And just as he saw perfectly Nathaniel sitting under that fig tree, and you're astounded by that, he sees perfectly into your soul and mind this morning. This truth of Jesus' all-knowing knowledge Beloved, if we're paying attention, if we are truly the church of Jesus Christ, we don't just kind of skip past this. It leads us to deep, prayerful reflection. And likely, I say likely, not because I'm suspicious of any one person, I'm suspicious of myself. But likely, a great reason to be afraid this morning. I wouldn't be doing my God-given calling this morning if I didn't say that. I don't know anybody's heart here. Only Jesus knows that perfectly. But based upon the evidence of Scripture, there are people in this room, possibly myself included, who as we hear this, need to be very afraid. Don't hear me trying to, a scare tactic. Hear, thank God for grace now to wrestle with these things before it's too late. Those of us this morning who may be wrestling, maybe my faith is counterfeit. 
Maybe my faith is how the Puritans used to call it, spurious, S-P-U-R-I-O-U-S, a spurious, a counterfeit, a shallow, thin belief, fake belief, a counterfeit belief. We should be very afraid this morning because he knows perfectly. If the demons tremble, why don't we? reality is a great many people today have been deceived by a gospel that Paul says in Galatians is no gospel whatsoever. A view of God which is no reflection of the true God whatsoever. A picture of Jesus that is a watered down version of Jesus that is no Jesus whatsoever. And many are living a life of deception. And here's what was true in Jesus' day. It's been true throughout church history. It's one of the reasons many of the martyrs died for their faith, and it's true for us in this room. I promise you this is what's going on right now in some of us. You hear this and you think, that's not me. And I pray it's not. But isn't it worth seeking the face of God? What do you see? What do you know? Is my faith in genuine truth? Have I, going back to the marriage illustration from the beginning, truly entrusted myself to Jesus? I've taken my hand out of the world and I've placed it in Jesus. And He's my King. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. He's my treasure. He's my joy. And I look to Him for provision, for protection, for nourishment, to cherish, for joy. And there will be other lovers who come down the pike. That was the message of the book of Revelation, wasn't it? But he's the one I've entrusted myself to. I know the temptation is real to drift, but he's my all, and I cling to him. Do you have that heart? Do you have his heart? Do you have the power of the Holy Spirit that change of life that accompanies the new birth. And I'm getting ahead of myself. That's next week in Nicodemus. But is there evidence that your life is radically altered unto Jesus? Because Christ entrusts himself to those who have, that he loves. That there's evidence that that heart has been changed by the Spirit of God. Do you have that love for Christ? That love for Him. That love for Him that drives you to the Word. If you, if, there are some basic things you can just look at and evaluate to evaluate the reality of your walk with the Lord. These things don't mean you're lost, that you've never been born again. They can mean that. But where we see these warning signals, where's, how's your time in the Scripture? It's crazy to say we love Jesus and don't pursue a Him, the only place you can find Him which is here. There, there is a problem there. Robert Murray McShane said this, it's a bad sign when the soul is not thirsty. True Christianity, true Christians are like newborn babes. They desire the sincere milk of the word. They need nourishment and need it often. You ever known a baby who didn't need milk? They need it often. They cry for it. McShane says exactly what the New Testament writer says, a sincere thirst for the Word of God. They can't live without it. Oh, hear the words of Jesus. Come unto me and drink. McShane says there's a problem with a heart that professes love for Jesus and hasn't touched their Bible. He's right. If you don't have that desire to know Christ meaningfully, it's a real danger. This morning, the goal is not to paralyze anyone in fear. It is to warn. That's all this is, is a very sobering warning, not to paralyze in fear. If you find yourself trembling this morning, if you find, oh my goodness, the glory of Christ, He knows perfectly everything about me. And He knows. Externally it looks good, but I've never entrusted myself to Him and Him alone. I've never seen my need for Him in that way that He is all. Run to Jesus. 
Run to Him. Cry out to God. I know what you see. And would you open my eyes so that I would be awestruck by the beauty of Christ? And to accompany that, you do have to open this. So even if you're not in the habit of Bible reading, this prayer, this pleading with God, open my eyes, it is forcing yourself to do what you naturally don't want to do. This is where I find Christ. When I say run to Jesus, I'm not talking about go to the park, sit on a swing, look up in the sky. Rehearse what you know about Jesus. That is the danger, that mental ascent. Out of a heart, I come to the only place where Jesus is found, here. And I beg and plead, I'm just not seeing it. I'm not awestruck. Open my eyes that I may see and behold the beauty of Christ. Help me to see what John saw, to know Christ in his excellencies. Open God's word. Plead with God. Plead for him to awaken your soul unto salvation. If you're trembling this morning and concerned, there is no other way than that. There's no invitation I can give you to come and make this decision, make that decision as we'll see next week. God has to do this work in your soul, and the means he uses is this right here. And if you are a true believer, if you can evaluate your soul and look at it, rejoice. Rejoice in the marvelous grace of God and continue to seek Christ here and plead with Christ more. More, show me more. Show me more. Because I promise you, he's inexhaustible. There's more to see. There's more to know. And the more you know, the more fully you're entrusting yourself to him. Have you entrusted yourself to Jesus in this way? Don't be quick to answer. Seek the Lord. Again, the message this morning is not intended to uh, try to convince someone you're not a Christian. That's not my place. Jesus here is exposing. I know what's in the heart. Don't play. Seek me.